I'm Ophira Eisenberg, and I am 47 years old. Welcome back to 25 for 25. I'm Panina Beattie, your resident 25-year-old. And in this show, I interview 25 people about what their lives were like at age 25. We are on episode 8 out of 25. And I'm really excited to share with you my interview with Ophira Eisenberg, otherwise known as the host of NPR's Ask Me Another. Queer Eye is kind of like Captain Planet, except for... Instead of summoning a superhero to save the planet, the elements of food, fashion, grooming, design, and culture come together to get a man to take a shower. (laughs) It's big news, yeah. I have to say, I've learned two big things from watching Queer Eye. One is, you gotta moisturize your beard. (laughs) Even if you're a woman, you gotta get on that. (laughs) Two is, the answer to all of your food woes Avocado. That's the answer. Yep. Don't know how to cook? Serve an avocado. Feeling angry and distant from your family? Smash an avocado. Feeling lonely? Dress up an avocado. That's your friend now. Yeah. Ophira was a pleasure to have on the show. In addition to hosting Ask Me Another, she's also a comedian and a storyteller and just a lovely person. I spoke with Ophira about how difficult it is not to get too caught up in the future and how it's all the worse when you have no choice but to adapt to a tumultuous present. I certainly know I've needed to adapt to these times. For example, I never used to be able to get any work done at home, but now look at me. I am producing my own darn podcast from my very own bedroom. Oh, it's fun. We talked about being vulnerable on stage without worrying too much about what people will think. We all worry about judgment, but I think grappling with that fear is the best way to find your voice. When Ophira was 25, she was living in Vancouver and planting seeds for the future, including performing stand-up for the first time. Here's Ophira Eisenberg on 25. Was it a momentous occasion for you to turn 25? You know, I feel like 25 did not, it meant something to me, but I was, um, I was like kind of in so much change. I feel like I was barely cognizant. I will just say that my birthday is January 2nd. So uh, whatever age I turn always seems to be, whatever I think about it seems to also join with whatever people are feeling about the year that things are like, you know, obviously when 1999, like my birthday was two days after that. Right. So that felt bigger, even though it wasn't an important number that I turned, but I do. And, and my 25th birthday, when I moved to Vancouver too, it was with some family. I was living with my sister for a while right before that. So it was like a, I just did like a family, small family gathering. I'm like a, you know, a bar bash or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't know a lot of people. Yeah. Because you had just moved there. Yeah. Um, Had you been able to secure some kind of uh, side hustle, money making uh, venture? Oh, God, no. I never do that. Uh, I never make a decision with that kind of planning. I mean, now I guess I would. But back then, I moved to Vancouver because I knew I could live in my sister's house. And then I got <laughs> and then I got a job at Kinko's. Do you remember Kinko's? Oh, yeah. yeah. There was one in Vancouver. I got a job at, in, Kinko, I, at, in their computer side to help people with their computer issues and problems and they would just rent computers and have questions or uh you know because not everyone had a computer at home or they were coming there to print or whatever but i so i didn't work in the copy side was in the computer side and yeah that was like a uh that was i I had to wear a little tie and a kinko shirt and it was a was a real that felt like a big job to me yeah were you particularly tech savvy a little bit i never went to school in it but i was always 
just kind of, I worked at it for years. I worked at it in New York and everything. I worked in it for years and years and years. And I was nowhere near as good as the people that actually went to school to study it. Um, but, you know, to give myself credit, I was a good, I'm a good problem solver and I'm a good logical thinker. So, um, and I wasn't scared of computers. That's also kind of part of the battle, honestly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And people loved hiring me because I didn't fit the stereotype of a computer geek at the time or whatever. They felt like I, that I was easy to talk to and kind of friendly. So they felt, uh, cause a lot of times, you know, people are so intimidated. Yeah. Yeah. So I was um, uh, not intimidating. It's always an insult when people <laughs> tell me how non-threatening I am, honestly. <laughs> That's interesting. Would you be happy if somebody was like, I was so intimidated by you? Maybe. Don't you think that sometimes that's who, like, you look up to people that intimidate you? I don't know. That's how I feel. Yeah, maybe. I feel like the people I look up to intimidate me. Uh, and I'm not yeah. saying the people I look down to don't threaten me. But it's an, in, it's an interesting power. It's yeah. like a power thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I... Yeah, I wonder, I'm, maybe it's like somebody intimidates you, but once you meet them, you know. Yeah, they're relaxed. I feel cool. like that's, yeah, um, that's the ideal. Um, <laughs> the real is a different conversation. Uh, <laughs> and um, did you, was that the first time that you were working in customer service? I worked in retail. No, I grew up in a grocery store. My my uh, my dad used to, was the principal of the Hebrew school for many, many years in Calgary, but he left the year I was born and then he got into the grocery store business. And so he he had um, three grocery stores in my young life and we all worked at the stores. And so, you know, the coveted job, of course, was the cashier. That was most fun. So. But you were, I wasn't really allowed to be a cashier until I was like 15 or so because, you know, just sort of. But I, yeah, so I worked dealing with people in a grocery store setting early, early on. And then I, I got a, I, when I was 17, I worked at a bead shop selling beads and making beaded jewelry. And I would teach mm. little classes to kids and adults on how to make beaded jewelry. And I worked retail. I hosted for restaurants, never good enough to waiter. But I hosted, so yeah, I worked um, in every every job like that. Are there uh, Canadian Karens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably, you know, <laughs> it's such a new thing. I feel like that there's a couple things, and I know a lot of women named Karen who are suffering right now. They're suffering because uh, they don't feel. It's like a hard. It's a hard. really hard time for Karens right now. It's a hard time for Karens. <laughs> uh, I don't remember. You know, I. I I just don't remember people feeling that huge separation between us and them and any customer service. I feel like that's a newer thing. And maybe, I don't know what that's about. Customer service has gotten worse. There's just more people. Um, the uh, expectations have changed. But I think it's a whole cultural shift. So there were, there were always people that complained. But I feel like it was so far and few between. Like you had to really screw up to have someone complain about you. And I think people you, also just felt like at a restaurant, they would be like, well, it was my choice to eat here. <laughs> you know, like if the food's bad, it was my choice. <laughs> was there Yelp? <laughs> no Yelp. Right. That's the then thing. You have no excuse. No, no excuse. There's no, there was no accountability on a, like the worst the threat you could give is I will never come back here and I'll tell my friends never to come back here. Did you know that you wanted to pursue performing at that time? Yeah, right around that time in Vancouver, I um, I decided I was going to try stand-up. I volunteered for the Vancouver Comedy Festival. It does a great comedy festival. And I volunteered to be an usher and just show people to their seats so I could witness it and not pay for it. And a lot of the other ushers were new like people that were trying to be stand-up comics. And they, and, you know, I was just like, we were just all shining flashlights in each other's eyes and making each other crack up doing dumb things. And they mm -hmm. said, you should come to this weekend workshop that they were all going to. And I was so afraid of it. I was like deathly afraid of it because I knew I wanted to do it, but I had no, it didn't have any bearing on how it, 
how one would do it. So all of a sudden someone told me a route in and I was scared. I was so scared to even attempt thinking about it. What was the first bit you ever did? Do you remember? Um, yes, it was. It doesn't even make sense, honestly. Because <laughs> I thought, I'm trying to say it like, and I will, I swear I had the wording right at some point, but I feel like I've lost the wording because when I thought about it recently, I was like, is that how that joke went? Because it makes no sense. Uh, and it was just about my name, right? I, and the sure. thing was like, nobody gets my name right or and when I say to them they go Ophira Ophira what kind of name is that and I say it's Hebrew and then they say oh do you come from Heb land or something <laughs> or are you a Heb and I was like yeah I'm a Heb I'm from Heb land the land of the Hebs Heb I don't know that was like something on Heb <laughs> that was my hilarious opener um, yeah, not good. I mean, um, no, I think it's, I, Terrible. I think it's good. If it was you, uh, your first time at an open mic, I told like a dumb dating story at my first open mic and it took me a long time to realize what TMI means. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> on stage. I think sometimes T- non-TMI is perfect for stage. Yeah. Um, uh, it was an interesting learning experience, like knowing where to set up boundaries. Sure. Because I really am, because I'm an open book, honestly. Like, I'll just say, I'll just tell everyone anything, like, because I don't like to lie. Um, but yeah, I've definitely had to learn how to, like, set up, or think about, okay, if I tell this person this, like, are they going to judge me? And not like I'm worried they're going to judge me, but do I really need to deal with that right now? Yeah. Maybe. No, yeah. I know. I mean, it, as, as someone who does like a lot of all my stuff is autobiographical, including stuff that I've like written and published about my life. And it does, I, I pause sometimes and just go like, Oh, if this person heard that and they like, would that, is that fair? Am I saying things that are fair or would it be okay? I don't know. It's it's a it's a call. You've got to make that call yeah. one at a time. Yeah, yeah. How has your artistic voice changed? Oh my god, drastically. Um, you know, mostly because I think I, I just had no confidence. So I think a lot of people that I see start stand up now, I feel like they have confidence. I'm so jealous of it. I'm like, how did you? I guess that's what it's like growing up in a environment where your parents tell you that you are great or something or but you have an Israeli parent so that's yeah (laughs) yeah no so I just lack so much confidence and I was uh, I was I was petrified I was just scared I was just scared I was scared in some ways just to own the voice because of many things like uh, about being a woman and even just owning the voice. Like I am finally given a microphone and I can say whatever I want and no one is going to stop me. And I was, I was even intimidated by that voice. Like, what do I do with this? What's okay to say. And then of course I didn't want to fail. I wanted to please everybody by doing well. I mean, honestly, that's what it felt like. It was like, I want to please everyone by doing well. And it took a long, just, you know, so much, of doing it to get over some of that. And then I still felt, I think even when I moved to New York and I was well-established into some semblance of a career-ish, I don't know if I was really paying my bills at the time, but uh, what helped me is that I started doing storytelling. The Moth was a pretty um, newish thing, like it existed, but it was still not a podcast or a radio show, which is how so many people know it nationally now. It was a live show and they toured, like they w- went all over the place performing live. And I found that, and when you do storytelling, even if it's funny, you can't hide, like the best storytelling is you, you just have to use your own voice and tell the story. Can't, like, can't be a better version of yourself or lie about what happened. Like, you're not the best story is just like the honest truth of what happened as you felt it and as you did it. And the exercise of making myself do that and getting some positive reinforcement totally affected my stand up. 
because then I had confidence that I was like, oh, you know, basically I'm worthwhile. I should say what I want to say because what I have to say is worthwhile. What other kinds of places were you kind of drawing inspiration from, whether that be artistic or otherwise, I guess? Yeah. um, In terms of like just finding material. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I was really, I was very heavily invested in, I tried observational humor, you know, which at the time was sort of a thing, obviously, I mean, it always is. And um, actually, when I moved to New York, everyone was really into one-liners. That was super popular as the stand-up style that everyone liked, misdirection one-liners, like very, very, very clever, fast writing. It's like Mitch Hedberg. Very much. Yeah. Right. Stephen yeah. Wright and then Mitch Hedberg and Dimitri Martin and like a lot of people really succeeded at that and still super popular. I mean, that's, that's just so, so much as like this very clever, well-crafted one-liners, whether they're dark or, or misdirected or like whatever it is. Sure. And I, uh, yeah, I, I was still in this sort of storytelling style, I would say. And I remember getting like negative feedback at a showcase, a comedy showcase in New York, where I was told that the way I, <laughs> the, my standup was very female in the sense that it was very conversational and storytelling. Like, Ugh. I know. Oh my God. I know. That reminds me of, um, have you, have you ever heard of or met um, Regina Barreca? No. So Gina Brecca, she she was a guest on my podcast actually earlier. And one thing that she talks, she writes about comedy mainly in literature. But um, one thing that she talks about a lot is like what women find funny and what men find funny. And one of the things is like a woman will will tell a funny story and it'll be like very small things and they'll be laughing. And if a man is in the room, I mean, he'll say, I don't get it. Where's the joke? Where's the punchline? And she'll be like. That the whole story is is you don't need yeah. a punchline. This it's, is a funny story. It's the ride, my friend. It's the ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, I even even my husband. Uh, I always have to correct him because I will. I'll be like, "Hey, what did you think of that? Like, like whatever one minute Instagram video I made that I'm going to put up." And he'll go, "Oh my god, I thought it was really cute." And I say to him, "That is the biggest insult." you can give a woman you never ever would look at anything a guy did and go that was really cute ever yeah. never ever say that again we I'm, <laughs> I'm very fun to be married to <laughs> so so they so this person gave you this feedback what did you say do you remember oh i felt terrible i mean i just felt terrible yeah. and i thought i'm doing it wrong basically and i'll never yeah. succeed and i'm doing it wrong and you know it's so funny if I look at the time, you know, time was moving forward. So you really can't see how small of a time because it just seems forward seems uh, endless. At, at, and so but it was so on the heels of me starting to find the moth and starting to find a voice here and storytelling in general becoming so popular. And soon, like I was started to do a lot in the storytelling scene. So I was doing the storytelling scene and the stand-up scene, and I would have all these stand-ups being like, how do I get in, how do I do that storytelling thing? And I, you know, and there was no money being made in storytelling at the time, at the time. I mean, I'm not even sure there is now, but it was just like, it was like really just a thing happening, you know, and there was no, there was no club, there was no pecking orders, you know, so it was a very hard thing to explain. I was like, I don't know. They're like, will you do it? Can you pass my name along? I'm like, nobody does it. It's not like that. Go hang right. out. You don't have to get you in. like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do think that that is such a, that's such a stand-up perspective of something because there are so many gatekeepers, so many people in the stand-up scene who think they're like posture as gatekeepers um, and say things like, you're jokes are too female (laughs) um would you think saying that to a woman you would go great because i'm a female but it was an insult (laughs) i you know but there's plenty of stand-ups who uh female stand-ups who or female comedy writers who were given the compliment and this was thrown around a lot where they would go you know why you're really good because you you write like a man Big time. If you Google that in, you will see so like attributed to 
Sarah Silverman. I mean, like so many people have oh, commented yeah. on people's act like that. Female, um, yeah, really, yeah, people that they love. Yeah, it it is different now for sure, but it's still confused in the yeah. comedy scene. It's like, oh, it's just good. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it's like a man. Got it. Right. Well, are, were, did you have a lot of contemporaries that were women around then? So when I moved to New York, definitely. I also, you know, so I did start stand-up for the first time in Vancouver, but it was, you know, a mm-hmm. purely amateur scene. And there, you know, it was such a, it was such a hodgepodge at this particular, it was at a club called Punchline. I mean, talk about generic, it's now gone that club, too bad. Uh, but it was such a, was mostly men, uh, but there were some women, and there were it, like it was such a hodgepodge because people were of different ages. It was not like I think I was one of the youngest at the time, where there was a couple people my age. Some most of them were older, and some of them were much older, and they just started like it was kind of all over the place. So yeah. it didn't. It just felt like a. It felt more like a ragtag bunch than you know. Then I moved to Toronto, and it felt more. You know, more like, oh, there's a bunch of women, but there's mostly all these guys. And then when I moved to New York, I I found it the most stark. And sort of the animosity between the women and the men, the most pronounced. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's still the case. (laughs) Yeah. And the gatekeepers and the mentalities and sort of the archaic things and everyone telling you what they think that what they think their audiences want. (laughs) Right. As if all audiences are the same. Right. And as if audiences answer a questionnaire, you know what I like? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That reminds me of a, I once did a show in Worcester, Massachusetts at the one of the first ever like weed lounges. Yeah. And they put me on third. Uh and third as it turned out, you know, probably like 30 minutes into the show, that is like right when everyone was at the peak of their high everyone was just totally spaced out and i posted the video because i knew it was a good set but a a bunch of people commented and were like nobody's laughing but this is funny why isn't anyone laughing and i'm like because everyone is just totally zoned out (laughs) you know i did a show a few years ago in colorado uh and everyone was pretty high and all I remember from that experience was like you would do a setup and there would be like some giggling. Like it was just no one was on the same page. No, not so it was at like all. Yeah. You said a word that someone thought was funny and that would, you know, they're off in this direction. Right. And yeah, no one yeah. like there is something about you understand why they sell alcohol at comedy clubs, frankly, because alcohol makes people like kind of punchy and they well, yeah. hit a rhythm together. <laughs> like they get in this sort of like group drunk uh, and yeah. they get boys. I definitely, yeah, I definitely, I, I realized that the the headliner for that show was this, um, oh God, I can't remember his name, Sam something. Um, but he was so good because, I mean, he's also just such a pro, but Sam Ike, that's his name. He's from Boston. And the reason why he did so well besides the fact that he's just very talented was the fact that he was like you guys are really fucking stoned let's acknowledge that yeah let's talk about it you right. know what i mean whereas i was not at the point this was already a year or two ago at that time i was not at the point where i was ready to kind of name the elephant in the room comfortably right. and naturally right yeah totally. so what around that time what got you up in the morning? Um, you know, I, uh, first of all, I've never, ever, ever in my life liked getting out of bed. Ever. I've never been a morning person. Man, I've tried. I've tried everything. Uh, but it just never happened. And I've finally given up on the dream. Like, I'm going to get up at 8 and I'm going to work out. It's never going to happen. That's the one good thing about age. You just get to a point where you're like, you're not changing. That's never going to happen. But I, I was, uh, I am a, inter- I am a eternal optimist. 
so I, what got me up in the morning was like basically a hopefulness of like what, what could begin, like what the next thing was. And it was also a pretty free time in my life. I didn't have any obligations. Somehow with my Kinko's job, I had, I did move out of my sister's place and I had enough money to pay my rent with somehow a little bit extra to, you know, go out a little bit. It's not like I wore fancy clothes or anything. I didn't care about that stuff. Uh, and it was, it was pretty free. And I, I was always, I was so chasing after different people and date. Like I was so into love and dating and relationships. Like that was a massive part of um, what I, what I like, like it was my hobby almost. It was my adventure. It was my hobby. Like, I just loved the connection of all of that. Mm. What were you looking for in the that kind of realm, dating and I think just, et cetera? I just loved connecting. I just love, and I didn't really, honestly, I don't think I was, I was definitely not looking for long-term commitment. I never cared about marriage. I was not, I didn't care about having kids. I didn't, I have a kid now who's four and that will just tell you how long in my life I did not care about having kids and basically adamantly said it was never going to happen. Not part of my life. Um, and, at, you know, with the stand up sort of in the back of my mind being maybe realized, but I didn't even take it seriously because I was afraid. And I was also like, I, you know, I heard all my parents in my head, like, what kind of career is that? And so I wasn't career driven. I was really driven to hang out. I used to actually say, um, I used to like want to, my, my tagline, I had a tagline for my life, which was my life is a series of distractions in between coffee, because all I wanted to do was go for coffee with people and like chat and connect and share, uh, and maybe date them. (laughs) (laughs) Keep that in the back of your pocket. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty open to whatever I, you know, like I, a smarter Ophira probably would (laughs) have. sat down and write so what would, or work towards something, but I was just hanging out, talking, <laughs> talking. Well, that's, that's really interesting that you say that. Cause I, there's a quote from a story that you told about um, your eventual decision to have kids or to have your son. Um, it, there's nothing worse than being forced to live in the moment. <laughs> yeah. I totally believe in that. I mean, we're yeah. living that right now. <laughs> How does it feel, everybody? Yep. Sucks. I know. Every single motivational um, quote around always says something about, you know, focus on the present and live in the moment. And I'm like, it's awful. Never live in the moment. <laughs> always have your eye on, like, where you're going or what you're doing. But you're right. At 25, did I have my eye on that? I feel like. I, um, I was always, I don't know, like, you know, I didn't have a lot of goals, but I had things I wanted to do. I was like, oh, I want to, you know, go on a sailboat in the thing, or I want to, I was always thinking about things I wanted to do or places I wanted to travel or, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. So it wasn't, I wasn't capable of buying access to things. Yeah. It's interesting, kind of make me think of the difference between a bucket list item and a goal. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, right. It it wasn't a goal. Like both are necessary. Yeah. yeah, It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, you know, whatever get, I was passed at the little comedy club after only doing it a few times because honestly there wasn't a lot of competition. It was a very open place. Um, And so that felt great. I mean, looking back, that was so hilarious because if I would have started in New York, I mean, who knows, who knows how long yeah. and how hard I would have had to work. Cause I came here with like almost, I came here with like a lot under my belt in terms of stand up, and I still started below the bottom. It is definitely, I, I also, I started doing stand up in Connecticut and then, yeah. and now I'm, Eventually, well, the plan was to move to New York this past summer. Obviously, that didn't work out. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought every time I would think like, oh, if I were in New York right now, I could be like making gains. But also, if I were in New York, people would see me in the beginning of 
my foray into comedy and they would form opinions about like if I'm good or not. Right. And it's like, yeah, why not get as good as you can where no one has to see you? Where like nobody in the industry is going to see you really. Yeah. Um, and then venture out. No, totally. Yeah. I, I think I think this is like an ever changing conversation, too, of, you know, especially right now, I think we're all toying with the idea of like, does location matter anymore? Yeah, definitely. I know that you uh, have had a few bouts with cancer. Uh, how was your health at the time? 25, fine. I mean, I um totally fine. I never really thought about my health. I do, you know, at that point, because I was in a car accident when I was eight. So I have big scars on me, on my stomach and I have a trach scar and just scars. So I was the, the only way that my health played into, you know, kind of how I saw myself is that I was dating around and I was sleeping. I was having sex with uh, um, multiple partners, but you know, I, I was with different guys and I felt like I would have to explain myself a lot. Or I was always sort of like, ah, there's this thing about a scar. And, you know, I, I never, everyone was always cool with it, but I always felt like it was a thing hmm. that we would have to talk about. Or that I would have to address that wasn't just right. part of the fun tone of whatever we were doing. Yeah. Did you, so did you, you felt like you had to explain it or people would ask you or it was kind of one I mean, or the other? Rarely would anyone ask me, really very rarely. I don't know if it's, it's probably because most of my scars you can't see with my clothes on and only a very weirdly trained eye sees the trach scar or maybe they see it and they're too afraid to ask. I don't know. But I feel like for the most part, people just don't notice it. Uh, and so it would only be, you know, if the clothes were coming off, basically. I felt like I would have to address that I have a huge scar in my stomach. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How did you feel about your body? I mean, honestly, I feel like at 25, I felt pretty this is a hindsight thing, so it's hard to say, because I do feel like I was always a little bit like it could be better. And I could, I should, you know, exercise more and I should, uh, I never um, dieted and I was always pretty healthy eater, but it was always sort of like it could be better and it's not as good as it could be. And like, look at that. And why am I not that? But at the same time, I was, um, I didn't think a whole lot about it. And for the most part was healthy and kind of active. So I feel like I had pretty decent um, self-esteem about my body. You know, my sister and I, who, my sister, one of my older sisters is very body conscious. And around then she got fake boobs. Uh, and I remember all of a sudden feeling like very all, you know, feeling just because I have small boobs and that's just what it is in our family. And all of a sudden feeling like, should I feel worse about that? <laughs> like really questioning, like I was like, it's never gotten in, in the way of me, I don't know, doing whatever I want to do or feeling attractive to a guy. But maybe I miss, maybe I should feel worse about it. <laughs> I think that is such a universal thing for women of like, anytime you're feeling like whether, whatever your general uh, feeling about yourself is sometimes, I don't know. I've definitely noticed sometimes uh, for me, like I think like everyone around me is self-conscious about, you know, this thing or like my friend is really self-conscious about this thing and I have the same problem or I have, a problem that she doesn't have, but I don't really, why don't I care enough? Yeah. Should I? <laughs> or like, am I supposed to care more? Do people notice it more, more than I notice? Right. It? I don't know. I know. It's like, I do already. Usually have the answer is no. I, I, yeah. I really have a lot of shame, but should I have more? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I just such a, Oh God, such a, a female. Place. It really is. Um, oh my God. Not to, not to be very dichotomous, but. 
I feel that it's very common. Um, <laughs> who did you respect? Who did I respect? Um, I think I, I definitely, I definitely looked up to my, even though my older sisters, uh, you know, they drove me kind of crazy at the time because I was all of a sudden more in their lives. And I think, you know, there was just stuff where they <laughs> probably were, you know, they were passing judgment on my choices in some ways or wanting me to be this, that, or the other. And I was also struggling to figure out who I was. Um, this is the kind of hindsight talking, but I did look up to them. I looked up heavily to my two sisters and they're very different. So I looked up to them for different ways. You know, my one sister, when I was just talking about who did get the fake boobs, you know, but she was so visually artistic and there was things that she could just whip up and do that were with such ease that, um, and she was, you know, for someone who clearly had body issues because she wanted to get fake boobs, she seemed so utterly glamorous and confident to me. And then my other sister is a, a, a university professor in political science. And she was, you know, obviously just whip smart, but also, it, it, you know, she had a job of authority, you know, and I, and I knew that even in the ivory white tower of an academic setting, how I was aware of how much she still always still had to prove herself. Um, so definitely, I, you know, those were definitely two people. And then when I was doing, starting to do stand up, I really, you know, I, I, I met all these new stand ups or people that had been doing it for a while in Vancouver that I just, uh, yeah, I was in awe of them, just how they handled a crowd and had great material and, you know, just made it in this weird world that I was just sort of half, half exploring. Um, well, you talk about respecting yourself. Um, I think that's definitely a natural time for kind of transitioning and learning how to respect yourself and, and love yourself and, and cut yourself some slack. When would you say was a turning point for you and kind of how did that happen? Oh, I think I have a very hard time cutting myself some slack. I literally, I literally, using the word properly, because uh, this literally just happened. Uh, I right before we got on, I, I, well, a little earlier before the uh, the Zoom meetings of the day started, I received an email from a very good friend of mine who was apologizing to me for not being on top of something uh, because she just moved and did all the stuff, and I replied to her saying, I'm going to advise you the same with the, with the advice I wish I could give myself. Don't beat yourself up so much. Being way too hard on yourself. This is like what you are, you are doing all the stressful stuff and it's totally fine. Like, oh my goodness, no one expects this. You know, you're, it's, it was literally uh, using it probably incorrectly this time. Um, <laughs> a, a mirror reflection of myself. Okay. Totally used it incorrectly, literally in that sense. <laughs> uh, but so I don't cut myself any slack. Um, yeah. When did that change? Gosh, I feel like it just comes and goes. Sometimes I feel like I, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of reminding myself to believe in myself because there's constant things that make me question that. So that's, that's a work in progress. Um, yeah. I wish, I wish I had a better answer for you on that one other than like, yeah, yeah, question mark. What do you got? <laughs> no, I'm honestly, I've had people, I've asked questions like that before and people have just been like, wait, when, why do you think it stops? <laughs> do, do, people are lying to you if, if they're telling you that it stops eventually. But I, I think maybe, I think hopefully, I definitely for me, it's changed, gone down a little bit. Yeah. Or, you know, I've been able to catch myself a little bit more. As I've gotten older? Well, I think there's a perception yeah. because of this idea that we look at age, which is basically like, a, a, we'll just say like a, a mountain going up and it's a linear thing. And so each should be a rung on a ladder and a progression. But really, I mean, I feel like there were years where I definitely was like, oh, I believe in myself. I believe in my voice. I'm good. Like, I, you know, I really just brought all the self-esteem in together and it felt like this is who I am now. And then something just knocks you down. And you have to start all over again. And maybe you start a little higher up, but 
you know, it's, it really is much more nonlinear in a back and the forth. I would love it to just be like, and then I accomplish self-esteem. Next. <laughs> so 47-year-old Ophira Eisenberg yeah. sitting here virtually with me today. Yes. Um, I'm beside you. Can't 20- you see me? It's weird because you sound like I'm talking to you over over Zoom, um, but you're sitting right next to me. I'm I you. Know. You're me. Okay. I'm your future. <laughs> I, I can't. You know what? There are worse things. Certainly there are worse things. Um, <laughs> so 25-year-old Ophira Eisenberg. Yeah. What would she say to you? I would say... Um, Okay, Monty Mattiotti as a choice for a relationship was a bad idea. Okay, so don't just stop that right now. Great guy, he'll he'll do great, but you guys are never going to work. Also, the pastry chef, worthwhile, but short term. That's a short term thing. Don't get heartbroken about it. He will come back and try to stalk you on Facebook during a time that you are going home to Calgary for to basically sit with your mother while she dies. It will be very weird and out of nowhere but it will happen. <laughs> uh, and, you know, something very cliche and standard, but it's true. I, I wish I could, as much as when I was 25, uh, say the same thing to myself as I would e- yesterday. Actually, honestly, where we are right now is so hard to say, but let's just pretend that we're not living in a global pandemic for the sake of this moment. I would say, uh, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Like you can, but it's not going to do anything. You can worry, worry. I mean, I mean, that's what I tell myself now. I'm like, you can worry it all up you like, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't actually, the worrying doesn't actually cause or affect anything other than yeah. stress. So, but yeah, I think I was always, even though I was on one hand, the dichotomy of anyone's personality, on one hand, like hanging out and figuring myself out and jaunting all over. I think I was also just deeply worried about like, how is it all going to work out? And am I good enough? And where should I be going? And, you know, who can advise me? Always looking for someone to advise me. Hmm. Turns out, nope, got to advise yourself. Yeah. yeah. Or listen to this podcast. Or listen to this podcast where I give, where I give you advice. Advise yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was younger, when I was like 16 or 17, you know, I was, I, I'm in like a Jewish, I wasn't, grew up in a Jewish community and I would just be like, mom, tell me what you want me to do f- with my life. All of my friends yeah. are being told what they should do. Tell me what I, what you want me to do. And she was like, no. <laughs> I, was so, I was so mad at her. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really yeah. hard. It's really hard. I, I feel like a lot of people are like, just tell me what I should be focusing on. That's why life coaches are such a huge thing. I mean, for some people, they're just like, help me get better at, you know, this specific thing. But I think for many people, it's like, what should I be doing? Did I miss out on what I should be doing? Because uh, you're just sort of like, could someone tell me how to do this? Like, oh, no, if it were that easy. Yeah, and the paralysis that comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. But I but I do appreciate the, you know, your ability to nonetheless hang out with people. Because I think definitely a lot of people are like, they either are worried and and then therefore only worry and, and work to work themselves to the bone because they want to succeed, whatever that means, or they're not worried about anything. Right. And, you know, they but have you, great social life. Yeah. You can be both. But, <laughs> I'm here to right. show you, you can be both, but you know, it was, yeah. it was right at 25. I remember this became the mantra for the, the next, and I still think about it all the time. I was flying from Vancouver back to Calgary to see my mom at 25 I'm almost, I think, on the dot. And uh, I got off the plane and I was going through, you know, whatever the arrivals to get to the part where you will get your luggage. And there was a sign in the stairwell, you know, basically trying to control traffic that just said, please keep moving forward. And I was like, that's the motivational message for me. Just like, it doesn't matter 
what you're doing. Just keep moving forward. You know what, though? I really like that there was a please in front of that. Because <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people give that advice. Keep moving forward. Yeah. Adding, please. I don't know. There's something that adds a nice touch. Start saying, please, please, please keep moving forward. Please keep moving Because it's not like you have to do this. It's like, please, for your own good. Yeah, for all of keep us. Keep moving forward. Just keep moving yeah, forward. For all of us. We don't want to deal with your shit, <laughs> with your 25-year-old bullshit. Just keep moving forward. <laughs> Just one little Get your baggage and keep going. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, that, I love that extended metaphor. Um and what would 25-year-old Ophira think about your life now? Um, I think she would probably go, uh, really? That's the best you could do? <laughs> All right. I mean, you know, it's acceptable. I think so. Um, no, I think I think 25-year-old Ophira would, you know, a 25-year-old Ophira would have been really impressed that I live in New York, for sure. 25-year-old Ophira would not believe that I got married and had a child. I think she might be like, well, at least you did it late, so you didn't throw your entire life away. Uh, and I think uh, 25-year-old Fira, like the, the, the true 25-year-old in me that wouldn't care about all the things that I care about now, but would see like the some of the shows I've done and the people I've met and talked to and all of that stuff as like just crazy fantasy land and un- unbelievable and to get paid for it. Yeah. 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 Which I do too, but I've never been one to be like, I can't believe this is my life. I'm like, I I work for all of, I work so hard. (laughs) Can I not, (laughs) I I should be able to believe it. I work really hard. Right. um, (laughs) What kind of music were you listening to at 25? Wow. That is Excellent. What was I listening to at 25? Let me think about that. I think I was listening to, uh, yeah, like always Prince. I was always listening to Prince. So let's just keep that as a baseline. Uh, I was listening to, I remember that I wore Liz Fair, I think had a new album around then that I was, I think I liked. I kind of remember that. My, um, this sounds like whatever it is. I was listening to more blues and jazz than I think I almost ever had been because of some people I was dating. Sure. Um, I think who else was I listening to? Oh, God, I'm like literally squinting my eyes thinking about it. that Liz Fair album was like, I do remember that was like a big deal to me. I loved Liz Fair. I still do love Liz Fair. Um, but that feels like you probably, have you ever listened to Liz Fair? No, I've heard of her though. Yeah. Well, she was like, but I'm excited to listen to her now. Yeah. She was, she was a kind of a big deal. Uh, and I think Portishead was like a thing that was being played everywhere. This sort of like ambient kind of, you know, kind of weird beats that would be coming in out of nowhere that were people were like, Oh, what's that about? Um, and there, and because yeah. of Vancouver had like a, a bit of a rave scene, there was just all tons of techno, like kind of Chemical mm-hmm. Brothers, just like t- tons and tons of techno, which I felt like I was consumed by and it was always playing around me. And I believe I even had some like mixes people made me or whatever, but I cannot tell you one artist. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. It's like Christmas music. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was like, it was a genre. For sure. All you know is that half of them are written by Jews. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> no, wait, that's Christmas music. That um, is Christmas music. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's all And a lot of people don't know that also. I know. It's hilarious. Anyway. Even any Rudolph. Hoosie. I know. Even, and that's a story. That's a whole journey in a song. I know. It's a lesson. I know people have it's talked about the nose thing. Is that really a thing? Oh, yeah. wow. Wow. Yeah. That that has to go into this episode of the podcast. That's got to change. My life. I'm really like, glad I learned this at age 25. 
So I don't know. I think just that, one more anti-Semitic trope. So from a fact-checking point of view, I am I'm not sure if actually the person <laughs> who wrote it, because supposedly Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger, Ranger was written as a ad copy for um, what's the women's department store that used to be in New York that is long gone. Sachs. No, like Steinways or something oh, like that. I'm sorry. I'm sure. not remembering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was written for that. And then, you know, like sort of a, uh, and then they did not accept it or, but then the guy ended up writing it as a song. But yeah, it was originally a commercial. Like all of Christmas. Oh. It was originally a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> or a nightmare. <laughs> Um, great. Well, Ophir Eisenberg, thank you so much oh, for joining me. It was a pleasure. And I do feel you have like a, I did a lot of PMI. So there you go. No, it was, per, it was just enough TMI. 